Hello, everybody. Welcome. New year, but the same old show, helping you think deeply about Christianity, what Christianity teaches, what to believe, kind of how to defend it well and faithfully live it out. You know, there's a lot of stories online of people leaving the faith, people questioning the faith. You may be getting into conversations with people saying, you know, I don't know about Christianity. I have these issues with Christianity. And my goal and our goal here today is to help you maybe think through those issues yourself if you're struggling with different aspects of Christianity, or maybe to prepare you to better defend Christianity for those that you are having conversations with that are asking questions about the gospel, science, and faith, and those sort of issues. And so joining me today is Dr. Jonathan McClatchy. Uh, he holds a PhD in evolutionary biology, is a Christian writer, international speaker, as well as a debater and assistant professor at Sattler College. He's also a fellow at the Discovery Institute. Institute. And so Do Jonathan has lodged an incredible ministry opportunity that he's going to tell us about, which is talkaboutdoubts.com. And so we're going to talk about that new ministry that he has launched, what he's doing there, as well as addressing kind of the big doubts and big issues that people raise against the Christian faith. So Jonathan, thank you for coming on the show and joining me today. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on, Ryan. Yeah, I know. I know that you know you you have done a lot of work in the apologetics world. Uh, you have a lot of different degrees in the areas that you work, but then you also kind of are talking, uh, holding. Uh, I know you used to do apologetic seminars and 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 sort of things. And so, kind of, I'd love to hear your story as well as what has led you into this kind of new venture that we're going to be talking about today. And then we're getting into those big issues that you were going to address uh, of talkaboutdoubts.com. So, how did you kind of get into this world and into where you are at now? Yeah, so I um, um, grew up in a, a Christian home, Christian background, um, in, in the same way that I also grew up in a heliocentric believing background and uh, um, a, a spherical Earth believing background. Right. So I um, and as I as I progressed in my development, as I went to college um, and studied uh, forensic biology in my undergraduate, I became very interested in the question of. Um, of science and faith, I am studying the, the wonders of the molecular world and the information storage, processing and retrieval apparatus that governs the show in life. I um, became um, uh, very impressed with the robust arguments that can be wielded for the reality of design in nature. And so I became very interested in um, arguments and evidences that tend to point towards the existence of an intelligent mind behind life and the universe as a whole. And uh, during my, my university years, I also interacted with various people who did not share my worldview, people who were atheists, agnostics, Muslims, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. I had a friend who was a Taoist during my undergraduate years. And, um, and so I, I became very interested in how we can develop robust methodologies to discover um, which of those um, sets of belief are actually actually reflect reality and to what extent they reflect reality. Um, and so I became very interested in uh, epistemology and uh, Christian apologetics and understanding uh, reasons that people have for disagreeing. I, I tried as a matter of principle to expose myself to more material that disagrees with my own view than material that agrees with it, because I, I want to, if, if Christianity was wrong, I would want to know that so I can right. convert, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, the more that I've studied the evidence, the more I've studied the critical scholarship that argues against Christianity, the more persuaded and convinced I have become that Christianity really withstands scrutiny. Um, and so that's why I'm a Christian today, because I'm persuaded by the public evidence that Christianity is objectively true. Um, 
And, um, and then I subsequently did a master's degree at University of Glasgow in uh, evolutionary biology. And then I, I worked for a year at the Discovery Institute in Seattle, Washington, uh, which is actually where I am right now I'm in the Discovery Institute office in Seattle. Um, and then I, um, 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 after I worked there, I did another master's degree at Newcastle University in medical and molecular bioscience. And then I did a PhD um, at Newcastle University studying the evolution of the eukaryotic cell cycle. And uh, um, and then I started working um, as a, an assistant professor of biology at Sattler College, which is a Christian college in Massachusetts, in Boston, uh, quite a new college. We're in our fourth year of operation currently, midway through our fourth year of operation. We actually just recently got accredited, so we're brand new. Um, and uh, so I teach uh, there various classes, principles of biology. I teach genetics and genomics. Um, I teach microbiology. I teach bioethics. And um, I'm, I've also been working on a master's degree in uh, biblical studies as well. Um, so, um, so in terms of my new ministry, talk about doubts.com. Um, this is a ministry that I've been doing privately uh, via my personal website um, since about 2016. And uh, I, um, um, on my personal website would get perhaps around one or two requests per week on average from Christians wanting to talk about doubts that they have concerning the veracity of the Christian faith. And um, it's something that's become a fascination of mine. I, I've watched um, hundreds, if not thousands, of deconversion testimonies on YouTube. I also lurk in various Facebook groups where people are giving their deconversion stories. And I've talked to hundreds of people that are either deconverted or are considering deconverting. And um, I... Um, want to, I, 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 it's really my heart and passion behind this ministry to create a, a situation where going forward, no one will be able to say that no one was there for me when I had doubts and questions about the Christian faith, uh, because this is a very recurring theme that you find in deconversion stories is that people say, well, they had these questions and doubts about Christianity. They went to their pastor and they had no idea how to respond that and their family and their friends. And, uh, and so they, since no one in their own circle of contacts had any answers to their questions, they concluded that, that no one in the last 2000 years has emerged <laughs> that has thought about the answers to their questions. Um, of course. So basically I've assembled a, I've assembled a team of more than 30 scholars. Um, um, most of them have advanced degrees or PhDs um, and um, have different fields of expertise. And so the idea is that someone reaches out through the, the contact page on the website and then we review those requests um, and, uh, and we submit uh, the request to a, a relevant scholar who uh, has expertise pertaining to that um, the specific field of the question that was asked and um, different scholars that are on the team have different levels of frequency. So some people are taking questions or taking requests once a month, some once a week and so forth. So based on expertise and level of frequency, that helps to determine which scholar will be the most relevant person to, to send that particular request to. So that's basically the, the history behind um, this, yeah. this ministry endeavor. And one thing I love about the ministry is I'm kind of looking more into it and seeing what you're doing is that, you know, people have the opportunity to, there's a lot of YouTube channels, myself included. There's, there's a lot of ministries where you can send in your question to the ministry and you get like an email response or you send me a question. I make a video response. Uh, but one thing I feel like is always lacking is the ability to have that conversation, the, the back and forth. And it's one reason why I love, you know, when people call into the show and it's like, Hey, I can say something and you can go, well, that's not really what I was talking about. Or, you know, I had a slightly different issue or, okay, maybe that's true, but what about this? And so that's what I notice is, is slightly different is that yours isn't just, hey, send in your question and we'll make a video about it. Uh, but you're having people uh, Zoom call one-on-one -on -one with these individuals really, why well, that's what it's called, talk about your doubts, to talk through the doubts. Is that right? 
Exactly, that's right. So most um, sessions we have like a one-on-one Zoom call with the person that's doubting. Sometimes um, there's um, two of us that will take a call from someone. And uh, some of these uh, conversations turn into long-term mentoring relationships uh, where I've done um, one-on-one calls with someone for a period of several months. and uh, and it's really encouraging to see their their journey and their progression and their maturity and thinking through these issues. And um, um, yeah, I've I've had people tell me that if it, if if it wasn't for this sort of intervention, they would already be atheists. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had um, one person reconvert back to Christianity, having oh. been an atheist for two or three years um, as a result of this ministry endeavor. Um, so yeah, that's um, basically it. Yeah, and that was going to be kind of my follow-up question is kind of what what, what feedback have you heard uh, and received over the years of doing this? And it sounds like there's been quite a positive uh, impact that this has had in people's lives showing like, hey, I want to take that time and um, and help people think through this. And so um, when you say that you got relevant scholars in different fields, I mean, there are really high-level scholars that you have uh, gotten for this ministry, and, and people can see that in the description below if you're watching on YouTube at talkaboutdoubts.com, uh, lists all the people that are involved in the ministry. And so it's an incredible opportunity. And so kind of with that, and you having hundreds of these conversations, I asked you kind of what would be maybe the top five issues, doubts, problems that people raise against the Christian faith that they kind of struggle with, that leads them away from Christianity or causes them to doubt Christianity. And so I want to kind of talk through those. Now, I've always been curious, and what I've always wanted to talk to you about as I've followed your ministry is, is one of the areas you brought up, and one of the areas that I talk about a lot on this show is, is science and faith, and, and, and that kind of being a big issue. And you mentioning that you have a PhD and a master's in evolutionary biology, another, uh, bi- your, your bachelor's is in forensic science, you have another master's in sciences. And so kind of one of the objections that I receive as I talk about science and faith issues is, well, you're an apologist, you're not a science, you don't, you don't, you're not aware of this kind of stuff. Uh, You having a PhD in evolutionary biology and looking at that kind of how has maybe your approach to this topic maybe been different or how have you kind of had a unique ability to speak into the science and faith issues having that advanced degree in evolutionary biology? Yeah, it's given me tremendous insight into the complexity and engineering marvel that is the cell. Um, When I look at the nanotechnology that is so pervasive throughout life, the DNA replication machinery, for example, or bacterial flagella, or the cell division machinery, um, both in eukarya and in bacteria, which are wildly different, by the way. The, the mode of cell division in eukarya is just a universe apart from how bacterial cells divide. Um, and I mean, there's when you look at the um, embryonic developmental pathway, um, even in simple organisms like uh, Canerhabditis elegans, which is a roundworm that occupies, so- which inhabits the soil, uh, it's the... the um, developmental processes that that allow the organism to be transformed from a fertilized egg or a zygote to an adult form capable of reproduction are absolutely mind-blowing. And, and so that's, uh, in fact, as, a, as an undergraduate, I was often bewildered how anyone could go through a four-year university program in the natural sciences and kind of an atheist at the other hmm. end, because the evidence of design in biology is so overpowering. Um, and uh, this actually relates to the problem of divine hiddenness, because... Um, uh, this is one of the points I make when this comes up that uh, so Richard Dawkins, as you may know, says that um, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. And what right. he means by that is the prophet Darwin uh, in, in its publication of The Origin of Species in 1859, where he, where he explicated his theory of evolution and natural selection, it was rather taken for granted that mm. God exists. And the number one argument or evidence for the existence of God was thought to be 
life, living organisms, because everything looks as though it's been designed for a purpose. And it, and so I, I often hear from, from skeptics, well, why couldn't God have made it more obvious? Why does he need us to go and get PhDs in astrophysics and molecular biology to uncover his existence? But I think that it's not that it's been made difficult. It's that um, it, it's, it's not that it's, that it's difficult per se. It's rather that it's been made artificially difficult by bad scholarship. Um, because if Darwin was wrong, and Darwin doesn't actually explain the appearance of design without recourse to an actual designer, then we're back to where we were before Darwin. And, and even more so because the problem, uh, the challenge to naturalism has been exacerbated since the days of Darwin. Because when Darwin was alive, the cell was viewed essentially as a homogenous blob of protoplasm, right? That was uh, Thomas Henry Huxley's view. And, and what we now know about the cell is that it's chock full of digitally encoded information content. And we have molecular machines, we have um, energy turbines and sliding clamps and um, just um, systems that require numerous well-matched interacting components to fulfill their job, where each of the components has to be specifically crafted to complement the other components in fulfilling some higher level objective. And that's a sort of system that we uniformly associate with design. Um, and so I, I would um, I would argue that actually God has not hidden himself. God has not taken pains to cover his tracks. Rather, he's left his um, existence um, apparent from the natural world, in particular living organisms. And one doesn't need to get confused by a bad argument and then unconfused by the response to that bad argument in order to have been rational in accepting the the conclusion um, of, or the, the obvious inference that um, before um, encountering the bad argument. And in the case of Darwinism, I think that this, the bad scholarship that is Darwinian biology has really um, made it artificially more difficult than it ought to be. But that's only because you have to then get into the weeds and the technicalities in order to respond to the, the bad scholarship that is Darwinian biology. Now, one of the things I, I, I've heard from evolutionists is that, you know, um, if God created these things, if these things are intelligently designed, why did he make them to look so much like evolution when it comes to uh, similarities in, 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 in DNA and similar bone structures and all this kind of stuff that are the, the, the arguments that are made to support evolutionary theory? If God did this, why did he make it look so much like evolution? Why didn't he make it look differently? What would you have to say about that? So a number of points there. First of all, um, I would draw a distinction between common ancestry and Darwinism, right? Common ancestry was not something that was new with Darwin. Uh, that's an idea that you can trace back all the way back to the ancient Greeks. The idea that was new with Darwin was the idea that natural selection coupled with chance variation, of course, he didn't know what genetic mutations were at the time, could explain the appearance of design without recourse to an actual designer. So even supposing that the proposition of universal common descent is true, uh, it doesn't follow that that um, explains away the appearance of design because you could have a guided form of evolution. Um, for example, it's one one possible scenario could be that God uses genomes of previous organisms as a template for the synthesis of new forms of life. That would be consistent with common descent in some sense, and would also be consistent with special creation in some sense. Um, so, I think once you start to move away from the gradualistic Darwinian paradigm, the boundary line between common descent and special creation starts to become rather less well defined. Um, but in terms of um, homology and similarities and of anatomical structures and so forth, I mean, um, similarity per se isn't, um, it doesn't really help us to distinguish between 
common descent is an explanation and common design because you can have uh, anatomical similarity because they come from a common designer. Now, um, uh, the more sophisticated version of the argument, of course, would be to say that it's not so much the similarity that's in view, but rather the distribution of similarities and differences. So, um, so for example, um, um, so primates have been on the scene for about 50 or 55 million years. And over that time, they have undergone many rounds of infections by retroviruses, which are RNA viruses, which um, integrate, they, they reverse transcribe using an enzyme called reverse transcriptase, reverse transcribe their RNA into DNA, which is the reverse of how our cells go about where they take DNA and they transcribe that into RNA, which is an intermediary molecule between DNA and protein. Anyway, these retroviruses sometimes infect the germline. And when they do so, they, they can become fossilized, as it were, and get passed on to future descendants. And so we, our genomes are chock full of, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of copies of these retroviral-like sequences in our genome. And uh, these appear to be genuine inserts um, because, um, because there's a characteristic target site duplication at the point of integration, which is a, a hallmark of insertion by the enzyme integrase. Um, and when you look at the distribution of those retroviral inserts, it forms this nested hierarchical distribution uh, resembling a family tree. Um, and then, if, um, which is what you would predict on a common descent view. And then you look at the, the point mutations that have been incurred in the retroviral sequence and the, the gag gene, the pole gene, the, the envelope gene, um, and you find a very similar nested hierarchical distribution. And then you look at the um, five prime and three prime long-term repeats at the termini of the retroviral sequence, which have to be identical at the point of integration and their degree of divergence can serve as a, um, and a predictor of the time since integration because they have to be identical at the point of integration and diverge over time. And so there you, there, there you have a threefold argument for, for common ancestry. So I think common descent is a defensible view. I'm not necessarily questioning that, but what I am questioning, which I think is what I think is devoid of scientific traction is the idea that natural selection and random genetic mutation can explain the appearance of design without recourse to an actual designer. I think that when we look at the cell, we find many systems where you have this higher level objective being accomplished by numerous uh, sub-functions which have to work together in concert to bring about this higher level objective. And these sorts of systems are not the products of um, unguided chance and necessity, but rather require a process that's able to visualize a complex endpoint and bring everything together necessary to realize that endpoint. And that is going to be indistinguishable from an intelligent mind. Now, I've had it made in this you know, such fascinating information because uh, I'm thinking to a conversation I had where the argument was made that endogenous retroviruses were like the best evidence for evolution. Um, and you kind of went through that and said, yeah, maybe some common ancestry, but not necessarily this random genetic mutation happening by natural selection. And so kind of what would be, um, how would you fit uh, the these retroviruses in with a creation model? And would you agree that this is one of the best evidences for evolution? Yeah, I, I would agree that it's one of the best evidences of, of common descent. Um, I, I think that common descent is a reasonable view. So I, I'm not um, I'm not a young earth creationist. I'm not going to say that there's no evidence for evolution. I think that there is. I think that there's evidence for common descent, some of which is quite compelling, at least at the more limited levels. Um, universal common descent is another question. But certainly, I think, um, say, the common descent of primates, for example, I think that it is quite well supported in terms of the scientific data. But um, I, I think that, as I said before, once you start to move away from the gradualistic Darwinian model of biology, um, 
where according to the Darwinian view, of course, there's no, there's never a first human, right? In the same way that it's very difficult to pinpoint the specific day when you became an adult, right? We say it's on our 18th birthday, but that's rather, <laughs> rather arbitrary. Likewise, right. how many hairs is it? How many hairs does it take on the human face to qualify as a beard? Well, um, we know a beard when we see one, but it's very difficult to actually quantify. And likewise, with um, uh, um, uh, with the human evolution from the chimp-like ancestor, it's very difficult to to um, identify a particular individual as the first human. Um, and so that, of course, runs that uh, I think is problematic if you want to subscribe to a robust concept of Adam and Eve, as 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 a traditional Christian, we would want to do. Um, and uh, I, I think, though, that uh, if you move away from that, that Darwinian gradualistic paradigm and embrace uh, a saltationist view, where which is undergirded by teleology or design, then the boundary line between special creation and common descent is rather less well-defined. You could imagine, mm -hmm. for instance, God creating a new form of life, say a human, using um, a non-human animal as a, a, um, as a template, his genome as a template for the synthesis of this new life form, which would then explain the appearance of, of common descent in terms of the molecular data and also be consistent with some of the other data, such as from population genetics, which suggests that um, human evolution um, is... Um, is, diff is is problematic in terms of um, the the relevant probability. So, in population genetics, there is a problem known as the waiting time problem, which is um, basically you can you can compute that there are two waiting times. Right, there's a waiting time for uh, a mutation to arise in the population, and that's based on the generation turnover times, the average mutation rates, and um, the generation sizes. And um, in um, Hominids until quite recently, there was um, about 10,000 to 20,000 individuals on average per generation. Um, um, in, in 2006, Mike Behe published a paper, sorry, published a book called uh, The Edge of Evolution, where he basically sought to extrapolate from data from the, uh, pertaining to the malarial parasite. Um, uh, how, um, so based upon how long it took malaria, the malarial parasite, uh, Plasmodium falciparum, to acquire resistance to the anti-malarial drug chloroquine, uh, adjust, adjusting for human populations how long it would take uh, to get that sort of um, two-step coordinated mutation in a hominid lineage. And he calculated about 10 to the 15 years for that two-step coordinated mutation to occur. Um, in 2008, there was a paper in Journal of Genetics which sought to challenge this estimate. And they, um, whereas Behe had given, put forward an um, empirical um, extrapolation, um, Dirt and Schmidt put forward a theoretical model. Uh, and of course, there's going to be simplifications involved there, uh, which may in part account for the differences in, in results. But they said, well, Behe was actually wrong. It would only take about um, 216 million years. Now, given that according to the fossil record, you only have about five and a half or six million years for the entire human chimp divergence to occur, that is problematic. Um, and then, of course, on the top of the waiting time problem, there's also the waiting time problem for the um, for mutations to become fixed because it's not enough just to get the mutation. It's not enough just to acquire that complex adaptation. It's got to go from being the lone individual out there that carries that beneficial adaptation to becoming the norm that gets established. And that's another waiting time problem. Um, and it turns out that um, for, for large population sizes, the uh, waiting time for the mutation to occur decreases because there's more individuals for it to happen in, but the waiting time for fixation increases because there's more 
individuals for the mutation to spread through it. But for small population sizes, it takes um, much um, longer for the mutation to arise because there's fewer individuals, um, but it's going to take um, a shorter amount of time for it to spread throughout the population. So there's no way, there's no easy way to work around the waiting time problem. And that I think is a major challenge or major obstacle to the evolutionary account of human origins, irrespective of whether common ancestry is true. And of course, there's the fossil record, which suggests that the origins of our genus Homo was rather abrupt as well. Um, there's the, the, the explosion of our, of the um, our genus Homo. Um, so that I think is is very consistent with what you'd expect on a design model rather than on a model of Darwinian evolution. Yeah. So for the person who is here, because I, I mean, this is such great information, but I can imagine some people going, but how am I supposed to remember this? When, when I'm in a conversation with a skeptic or with a friend and, and they're raising issues uh, about science and faith, um, I'm, I'm kind of curious, what are the, maybe the big issues that people bring up? Cause you know, at least for me as a high school teacher, I often just hear, well, the fossil record. Uh, and, and it's almost this very basic level of evolution uh, that is somehow objecting to a creation model, but there isn't much maybe depth or knowledge of, of how that exactly disproves creationism. And so I'm kind of curious if you have a few more words before we move on to another topic of uh, for the person who's, you know, the college student who's here saying, look, I'm trying to understand what my professor's saying, or I'm trying to maybe talk to a friend who's in classes with me. Um, what What is maybe the... the I don't know if I can say it in a few words, the, the big issues uh, that people raise as far as science and faith that brings about doubt and, and some maybe some words that you can speak into that to encourage them um, as far as a Christian perspective. Sure. So the biggest one probably is the historicity of Adam and Eve. Um, and um, there's a, there's a um, popular um, assertion that's repeated a lot on the internet that uh, the human diversity precludes um, us having descended from a primordial couple. And that actually is incorrect. Um, there's studies that have now been done which show that actually you can uh, get all of humanity descended from a primordial pair um, if so, as long as you're willing to push Adam and Eve back into the hundreds of thousands of years, um, which is where I would place uh, Adam and Eve. Um, and uh, so I, um, I would refer um, viewers who are interested to all the Hoster's work and Engage's work that they've published uh, giving theoretical models um, based on population genetics, um, which shows that you can, in fact, get um, humanity descended from a primordial pair, especially if uh, you are willing to countenance the idea that um, there is created diversity um, by, by the hand of a designer or God, uh, which I think is consistent with both the scientific data as well as biblical theology. Um, so that's probably the biggest uh, issue that comes up. Um, we have people that... Um, ask about the age of the earth and the early chapters of Genesis. Um, I, I don't think that the early chapters of Genesis commit one to, a, to young earth creationism, for example. Um, and I have several articles where I discuss this in detail on my website if anyone was interested in pursuing this further. But for instance, um, the, the first uh, day of creation week right, begins in verse 3 of Genesis 1, because that's the first occurrence of the phrase, and God said, uh, which do, denotes the beginning of each of the days of creation week. If you look at um, verses 1 and 2, of Genesis 1, um, they actually occur before the first day of creation week. And therefore, irrespective of what you think of the age of the biosphere, the Bible is completely silent on the age of the earth um, and, and the universe. Um, the, as for my view of the days of creation week, um, I would be most closely aligned with the view of um, C. John Collins, who's written a number of books on this subject. Um, 
he was one of, on the translation committee also for the English Standard Version of the Bible. Um, he's a Hebrew scholar. Uh, but he takes the view that um, the days of creation week are not identical to our Earth days, but they are analogous to the human rhythm of work and rest. Um, so uh, that would be the view that I would be most um, closely aligned with, that they, um, yes, the Hebrew word yom is indeed correctly translated day in the regular sense. I would disagree with Hugh Ross, who argues that it's correctly translated as an indefinite but finite period of time in that text. Um, and I would argue that, yes, the, the Hebrew word yom is correctly translated day, but that it's analogous for the human rhythm of work and rest rather than it being identical to our work week. Um, yeah. So that's a, a few quick points. Yeah, awesome. Well, I know that, man, I could sit here and talk about the science stuff forever, but I did tell everybody in this video is titled The Five Different Issues <laughs> That uh, Are Raised Against Christianity and Causing People to Walk Away. And so we need to get to the other four or else we are going to run out of time. So maybe I can have you back on another time to talk about all of that kind of fun stuff. Um, but again, just plenty of people to, uh, hey, if you have more issues, more questions that you need addressed, maybe we've raised more than uh, you came here with, uh, go to talkaboutdoubts.com, submit your question there, and you can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a scholar to address more of these issues. Um, now, I didn't mention at the beginning, but maybe the other issues that we're going to address is, is the hiddenness of God is one thing that causes people to doubt. Uh, there are emotional doubts that people have. Obviously, a big one is the problem of evil. And then you brought up uh, some New Testament issues. And so we've kind of addressed this a little bit. And this can kind of come out in many different ways. But but how, how do you see in the conversations that you have and the questions that people are submitting, uh, the hiddenness of God uh, causing doubts in their life and causing them to possibly walk away or question their faith? Yeah, so hiddenness of God is um, basically, there's different expressions of the hiddenness of God. Um, and um, the idea is that what, why doesn't God make himself more immediately obvious? Um, I, I mentioned, I alluded to this earlier already in the conversation uh, that sometimes people ask, well, why does God need to get PhDs in astrophysical and molecular biology to uncover his existence? And as I said before, <laughs> I don't think that it's, it, it, I don't think that it is actually that difficult, but it's only made difficult by bad scholarship. But I think that when we go outside and we look at nature and we look at in particular living organisms, the strong appearance of design is pressed up against our noses. It's, it's, it's very difficult to get away from. Um, now, at, um, another um, expression of the problem of divine hiddenness is uh, unanswered prayer, or why doesn't God um, show up in my life? Um, why, why do I not have tangible experience of God? Um, and what I would say to that is that di different people have different experiences of God. God works in different ways in different people's lives. And the Bible, that's exactly what you predict on the Bible as well, because um, when you look at the Bible, we see certain individuals such as psalmists in, in various places and also Job, where they're asking, you know, where is God in, in my circumstances? And why doesn't God show up in a, in a tangible way and give me a, an immediate um, tangible sense of his presence? Um, and what, or, um, or people go um, unhealed or um, God doesn't necessarily take people out of their circumstances. Um, and, and yet, on the other hand, in the Bible, you find people that God does show up for. Um, we see that with um, various people like um, Abraham and Sarah or, or Gideon or, or Daniel or, or um, Dave, King David and so forth. Um, um, uh, the Apostle Paul. And so we know that God works in different ways in different people's experience. And I would encourage people to not limit the scope of their inquiry to their own personal experience, because if your own personal experience counts as evidence, um, then you also ought to consider testimony to be evidence. Um, and I would argue that we have sufficient testimonial evidence that God is indeed at work 
uh, in the world today, even up to the present time. Um, if you read, for example, um, Craig Keener has a two-volume set on yeah. modern miracles, and he does a very good job of documenting examples of modern miracles in the world today. And um, many of these are multiply independently attested and some with medical documentation. Um, so um, that that ought to be ought to be a consideration. One should not limit one's inquiry to one's own personal experience when there is sufficient testimonial evidence. Um, so there, yeah, there's, there's a few points on the problem of, of divine hiddenness. If you want more detail on this, I do have a, an article on my website where I unpack the problem of divine hiddenness in quite some detail. Yeah, and those listening on podcasts or radio or whatever, uh, the, the website, you know, it's jonathanmcclatchy.com, I believe it's uh, those on YouTube. It is in the description below. You can go down there and find that there. You know, I, I remember a conversation I once had with an atheist on Twitter where he's talking about, you know, God being hidden and, and me kind of agreeing in the sense of like, yeah, he's not like standing in front of you like another person having a conversation like we're talking here. There is a sense in which he is kind of obscured himself. He is transcendent. But I sent him a picture of like uh, uh, playing hide uh, of a child who was playing hide and seek where they thought they were hiding and they had the pillow covering them, but their legs were sticking out. And it was like, yeah, this kid is hidden in one sense, but to any person with their eyes open, it's obvious that the kid is here. And I look at it similar in a sense of, of God is that, yeah, there's a sense in God is transcendent, uh, but with our eyes open and looking at the world around us, there's there's signs, there's design features that, that make it obvious uh, that he is here if we're kind of open and willing to, to, to see that. And so I'm kind of curious, um, in the conversations that you've had, what are people maybe expecting to see uh, from God uh, claiming, yeah, he's hidden because I don't see this. What are they expecting to see that would somehow convince them that God is real? Uh, they're expecting perhaps to see miracles or God to show up in, in a dream perhaps, or God to um, just make his existence more immediately apparent. Um, and as I said, I think that God doesn't work in the same way in everyone's experience. And um, an another issue of Another issue relating to the problem of divine hiddenness that often comes up is um, why and why does God allow um, non-resistant non-believers, right? That's a Dion um, right. Schellenberg's um, phrase. And what, what I would say there is, how do you know that there are non-resistant non-believers over the course of someone's entire lifetime? Because right. if you're a non-resistant non-believer, then chances are God's not finished with you yet. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I think it's very difficult to demonstrate that there are people that are non-resistant, non-believers all the way through the, the, the course of their lifetime. And in fact, one could even argue that God intentionally hides himself from certain individuals because he knows people's hearts and he and with and withholding hit, um, greater knowledge of his existence is an act of divine mercy because having a greater knowledge would make people more culpable and God knows that they would reject him anyway. And so it was actually an act of divine mercy. So that's also a possible way of looking at it. Um, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, there, there's even quotes by people and I've even talked to a few people. It's like, you know, if, if you saw this, you know, would you believe? And, you know, if God opened up the heavens and spoke, right, I think it's Richard Dawkins or someone says, you know, if God opened up the heavens and a voice came down saying, I am God, I exist, the, the first thought would be, I'm, I'm, go I'm going crazy, not necessarily that God is real or God is true. Um, and so, you know, I wonder, again, how much is happening in our lives that we, you know, equate to chance? Oh, my goodness, I got so lucky rather than God answering a prayer or God working or God doing something. And maybe God is revealing himself in certain ways that we don't see because we're not really looking or expecting uh, uh, God to show up in those ways. Um, 
Now, along kind of with God hidden, I think this is an aspect you kind of hear of like kind of the problem of evil. Where is God in the suffering? Where is God in this? Um, you know, if someone comes to you and says, you know, I'm having issues with 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 believing in Christianity, with trusting that God is good uh, because of all the evil, pain and suffering in the world. Kind of where do you start in having those sort of conversations with people? Great question. So I consider the problem of evil to be some evidence against theism. Uh, I'm not someone that says all the evidence has to be on my side. In fact, I caution people to be very wary of anyone who tells you um, on any complex topic that all of the evidence is on their side, because yeah. if all the evidence was on their side, why would scholars disagree? Um, so I, I think that there is evidence both for theism, for Christianity and against. Uh, and I happen to think that the the balance of evidence is significantly on the side of Christianity. Um, but I nonetheless try to um, be intellectually honest and concede when there is evidence that goes against Christianity. Now, I think that with the problem of evil, it's very easy for people to overestimate the potency or the strength of the problem of, of um, natural and personal evil. Um, for one thing, one point that's often overlooked is that instances of evil in the world um, are not epistemically independent. So if God has a morally sufficient reason for permitting the first instance of evil in the world, he may well have a similar morally sufficient reason for permitting the second and the third and the fourth and so forth. Um, and so, um, so it doesn't follow necessarily that the second piece of evil in the world is going to carry the same evidential weight as the first and the third as much as the second and so forth. And so you, there's a problem with diminishing returns by multiplying examples that you cannot just simply keep multiplying examples indefinitely of evil and expect your case to continue to grow in strength. Um, so that's one um, point to bear in mind. Whereas in contrast with the case for theism and Christianity more particularly, the case is not only extensive, but it's also varied in kind. We have multiple kinds, multiple categories of evidence, spanning multiple disciplines. And therefore, given that we have two competing cumulative cases, one of which is all evidence of the same kind, and one of which is evidence is spanning multiple disciplines, I would be more inclined to favor the latter. Um, and another problem, another issue that's often overlooked is what's known as the problem of evidential entanglement, which is um, that if, if, um, if, if uh, so if we have evil and suffering in the world, uh, it is necessary to have conscious objective experience because you cannot experience suffering unless you're conscious and you also cannot perpetrate evil unless you're conscious. So, sub so suffering and evil are inextricably linked to the existence of consciousness. But as Richard Swinburne has shown in his book, The Existence of God, um, the um, existence of consciousness is much better predicted on theism than it is on atheism, um, especially when you start to break it into its into all the various preconditions that are necessary for consciousness to arise, such as the existence of a universe governed by physical laws such as gravity, not just any old universe, but a finally tuned universe, and the origins of life, and the origins of multicellularity and um, molecular machinery, and the origins of um, um, body plans, um, organs, and tissues, and uh, eventually brains emerging and, and so forth. There's a lot of preconditions, each of which is much better predicted on theism than is on atheism. So and many of these have been used as points of leverage in arguments for theism against atheism. And therefore, the existence of suffering and evil in the world is highly surprising, both on theism and atheism, which are two mutually exhaustive propositions. Um, and so therefore, that also, I think, reduces the evidential force of evil against theism.
So would you say then, you know, because it's often said that, yeah, like you can use evil as as an evidence, an argument against God, uh, but evil wouldn't even be possible if God didn't exist. Would you kind of take that view of, of that is, as you kind of mentioned there before with consciousness, that, that God is actually required uh, to exist in order for evil to be possible, and that if God didn't exist, then you kind of have no evil, kind of like the Richard Dawkins quote, there'd be neither good nor evil, no nothing but blind, pitiless indifference? Yeah, so um, I would argue that... Uh, evil and suffering would be tremendously improbable on the falsehood of theism, given all the preconditions necessary to get embodied consciousness. Um, but I would not suggest using the alternative approach to that, what you just said, which is to say that um, um, that uh, the argument has to presuppose that God exists in order for it to run, because, um, because you cannot ground objective moral norms on the falsehood of theism. The reason I don't like that approach that many Christian apologists have adopted is because um, any intelligent atheist will rightly respond, well, I might not be able to ground objective moral truths on my worldview. Let's just grant that for the sake of argument. But you claim that you can. And this right. is an internal inconsistency within your worldview. So I think that's a legitimate response from the atheist, which is why I don't make that take that approach. But I think the approach that I just suggested um, is is a much more robust argument. Yeah. Now, you know, kind of what we're doing here, and, and I mentioned in the live chat to those who are writing in, you know, some of the science questions that have come in, we'll kind of address those at the end since we've kind of moved from that topic. But what we're talking about here is is using apologetics and making a defense of the Christian faith and, and kind of using those responses and 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 arguments and evidence to, to help people see the truth and veracity of Christian theism. Uh, Jose Martinez writes in a question here, and he said, how would Jonathan respond to the claim that apologetics will make, make Christians into atheists? I've been told this by some in my church. Um, wow. Um, <laughs> I would be really interested in why they think that. I mean, I've heard atheists say this because they think that the evidence supports atheism or that um, uh, I, I think they're mistaken on that. Um, I think that certainly there, there's a shallow form of apologetics um, where, uh, which unfortunately does sometimes have a tendency to drive conversion to atheism because people receive this misinformation from apologists, well-meaning apologists, and then they discover that actually this misinformation is not accurate. And yeah. so it's, it causes them to lose confidence in their faith. So I think it's very important that as apologists, we're very accurate and we have a high bar in terms of our um, um, our eth ethics as, as far as um, dissemination of information that we check our sources and, and really try to strive for accuracy. Um, I, I, yeah, I'd be very curious what the people at your church, uh, what what justification they would have for making that assertion, because that seems to me to be flatly false. I, I know many, I, I know people through my own ministry that I've shared the evidences of Christianity with who have become much more confident in their Christian faith. Right. Um, and I actually encourage people that I talk to to read atheist books and write down talking points and talk to me about them because I'm not afraid of the best counter arguments because I, I think that the evidence supports Christianity. So I, I, if Christianity is true, we have nothing to be afraid of. And people that say that studying apologetics is going to turn people into atheists are people that are not confident in their own in the veracity of their own faith, which is quite sad. Yeah. And I know that the same is true for me is, is not that I was, I, I never went through this serious period of doubt, which is what happens to a lot of apologists is they kind of go through this period of doubt and questioning and that leads them into apologetics ministry. Um, but I know that when I discovered apologetics, my faith grew, my faith strengthened. And I know that of many people that I've talked to as well. And so this seems similar kind of to the comment of like, no one comes to the faith through arguments and evidence. And then there's all the people it's like, well, I came to the faith because of arguments and evidence, you know, that is the, the vehicle, you know, that the 
the Holy Spirit used to draw me to him. And so it's it's often maybe these claims that are made um, about what happens to people that doesn't take into account all the testimonies of people in which it has been uh, effective for. Um, now, again, there's many more issues that we could address with the problem of evil. Head over to talkaboutdoubts.com to, to submit more questions there as we kind of just do a brief brief survey over some of these big issues. Um, now, another one that you talk about, man, there could be a hundred different issues that we could talk about here is that you bring up issues with the New Testament. So when it comes to biblical reliability, New Testament reliability, what do you see as some of the big challenges that we need to be aware of and kind of know how to talk through in order to help people um, think critically about their faith? Sure. So um, there, there's no, there's, uh, this is a very broad topic, as you said. Right. So we're not, we won't go <laughs> and I have a ton of videos for those watching. There's a ton of videos I have on New Testament and biblical reliability with tons of different historians and scholars uh, that address specifics uh, that you can check out as well. But what would you say maybe are, are the couple yeah. that you have in mind? Sure. So um, people sometimes ask, well, how can we know, how can we trust the New Testament? How can we trust that the New Testament is actually giving us a, a reliable historical report of Jesus, what Jesus said and did? Uh, and I think that there's numerous lines of evidence that we can adduce to support the substantial trustworthiness of the accounts that we find in the New Testament. So one category of evidence, for example, is what I, is what's known as undesigned coincidences, which right. is a, coin, a term coined by um, um, William Paley. Uh, in his uh, uh, view of the evidence of Christianity, as well as his Hori Polonai. And um, uh, this is where you basically have two accounts concerning an event which dovetail in a way that's unexpected if one account is copying from the other, or they're being made up, or both are copying from a common source. Um, so it's best explained by giving examples. So I'll just give an example. So in, in um, John chapter 6, you have the setup for the feeding of the 5,000 miracle. And Jesus... Um, um, to, um, says to Philip in verse five, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? And that raises the question in the mind of the audience, well, why Philip here in particular? Philip's a fire, fairly minor character in the gospel accounts. Um, well, if you turn over to John chapter 12, we learn that um, a different context, six chapters removed, a different Passover feast where there were some G Greeks at the feast of Passover who wanted to speak to Jesus. And verse 21 says that they came to Philip who was from beside in Galilee and asked him if he could speak to Jesus. So we learn just in passing there that Philip is from the town of Bethsaida. Now, if we go over to Luke's account, Luke mentions um, that, um, um, it says in verse 10, um, on the return, the apostles told them all that they had done, and he took, he took them and withdrew apart to a tank called Bethsaida. And that's where the feeding of the 5,000 takes place. Um, and um, notice that, um, um, uh, so, it, it, so Luke tells us that there, there were people coming and going, um, and they no leisure even to eat, so they have to withdraw to a desolate place. And, um, um, okay, so, um, sorry. Um, so, Luke, so Luke 9 tells us that the event takes place in Bethsaida. So you put the pieces together from John 6, we learn that Philip is from Bethsaida. We, we, uh, sorry, uh, Luke 9, we learn that um, the event takes place in Bethsaida, but Luke doesn't mention Philip in this conduct at all. John doesn't mention Bethsaida as the setting of the miracle story. It's only in John 12 that we learn that, um, um, that Philip is actually from Bethsaida. So you put the pieces together, and now we understand, we have a complete picture, why Jesus speaks to um, Philip in John 6, 5, he's a local guy. He knows where the shops are to buy bread. Now, there's also um, 
And notice that that's never explicitly spelled out in the text. You have to do the detective work of putting these pieces together. Um, and that's something that's surprising if this is a work of fiction, but unsurprising if it is the work of, of historical reportage. And, and Mark also has an account of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. And he reports that, uh, that, that there, there are no leisure to even eat because there were people coming and going and it was very busy. And so they had to withdraw to a desolate place and rest a while. And so that indicates just how busy the place was. And um, and he also mentions in verse 39 that, that the, Jesus uh, commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, in Palestine, the grass is actually brown, not green throughout most of the year, except at a very narrow window of time uh, because of the higher levels of rainfall around the, time, around the spring and, um, and, and um, around the time of Passover. Now, if we go back over to John's account in John chapter 6, um, in verse 4, we learn that the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Um, and so that then illuminates why there were people coming and going, why it was so busy they couldn't even find leisure to eat in, in Mark's account. And also illuminates why the grass was green, because it was the right time of year for that. But again, the casualness and subtlety with which these accounts dovetail and interlong with each other is highly predicted on the hypothesis that these actually reflect historical reportage. Um, there are also plenty of examples of extra-biblical attestation to the gospel account. So, for instance, um, in... Um, in uh, Acts 23, taking an example from Acts, um, we learn that um, Paul is apprehended and he's brought before the Jewish council. And those that stand by, um, Paul, um, the, the high priest Ananias, who's presiding over the council, orders those standing by to strike Paul in the mouth. And Paul says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. For um, according to the law, you presume to judge me. And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. And um, and the people say, um, you, you would revile God's high priest. And Paul says, oh, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it's, not, it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, this raises an interesting question in the mind of the audience. Well, how come Paul doesn't know who the high priest is? Um, surely he could tell by his garb, if, if nothing else. And and we, we learn in Josephus, and I have this, I discuss the sources for this from Josephus on my website, if anyone's interested in chasing news up. Um but it, we learned that actually Ananias, of whom that was spoken, was in truth not the high priest, but he'd been sitting in judgment in that assumed capacity. So he previously held the office. He'd been deposed. And the guy who replaced him called Jonathan had been murdered, assassinated. And, and so um, another had not yet been appointed to, the, uh, to that station. And so during the vacancy of his own authority, Ananias assumed upon himself the discharge of the office, which then illuminates Paul's words. Oh, I didn't. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize he was the high priest. Right. It's a, it's a jab at Ananias. Where, so there you have an example where. Uh, Josephus actually provides some backstory into what's going on in the biblical account, which is um, better predicted on the hypothesis that this actually reflects historical reportage. Um, and there are there are plenty more of these that that one could discuss. Um, and uh, um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of the positive case. Of course, there's also yeah. a negative case that also has to be discussed, but that would take some time to go through. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I just want to point people out, you know, it's, uh, you know, what you're talking about here with undesigned coincidences. Uh, I had Lydia McGrew on uh, a little while ago, about three months or so ago, uh, titled A Cumulative Case for Reliability of the Gospels, where she has a book um, called Hidden in Plain View, uh, discussing all of these undesigned coincidences. And they're fascinating uh, what you point out here. And, and what I notice in reading kind of her work 
is just, you know, such minor things. Like, for example, if if you don't know anything about Southern California geography, uh, you're gonna say, hey, I'm gonna go to Los Angeles. Um, you know, but if I say, look, I'm gonna go over to Los Angeles or I'm gonna go down to San Diego, you, you use just these extra words. I'm going down to San Diego rather than up to San Diego. because And it shows you, I know where San Diego is compared to where I'm at. Someone who doesn't know the geography is not gonna use that type of language. And so that's similar to kind of what you see here if, you know, green grass rather than just grass is they're they're adding these small little details that most of the time we maybe don't think about we don't recognize of how this is adding eyewitness credibility to not only knowing the geography but the time of year and these sort of things and how that kind of fits together to create this picture um, is so cool when you kind of think about these small details now um one of the biggest issues that I hear kind of in, in the New Testament, you kind of gave a positive case, is, is kind of the, the contradictions uh, in some of these stories. Uh, kind of if you can, maybe in a few minutes, you know, how do you kind of address what, what are these apparent contradictions uh, within the New Testament accounts? Yeah, so very quickly, um, first of all, as an epistemological level, these are, I would argue, of less evidential value in disconfirming the reliability of the gospel accounts than the positive case um, would be in confirming the reliability of the gospel accounts. Because when you calibrate your expectations by looking at other works of ancient literature, even material that's believed to be reliable and reflecting eyewitness testimony, what we find is that there are discrepancies and variations in testimony, uh, even with modern examples. Um, uh, you can find contradictions, for example, in eyewitness reports of the Titanic sinking, for example. Um, and so when you calibrate your expectations, it's, it's pr actually predicted on eyewitness testimony that you will find variations and discrepancies, minor discrepancies between the accounts. Now, if we look at um, um, just to take an example, I mean, um, Bart Ehrman has a book um, called Jesus Interrupted, um, revealing the Bible's hidden contradictions and why we don't know about them. And uh, there's a lot of problems with the examples he uses in the book. I'll just give you one example of many that we could talk about. Um, so um, this one concerns the resurrection narratives. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have multiple women that discover the tomb empty on Easter morning. And even between the synoptics, of course, the identity of those women varies between the synoptic gospels. Um, although we know that Luke is not trying to give us an exhaustive list because Luke, in Luke chapter 24, explicitly tells us um, that um, he uses the expression, the other woman with them told these things to the apostles. Um, and and so that, um, so if, if he's not trying to give us an exhaustive list, then there's hardly a, a contradiction between the accounts. Now, the interesting um, part is when we get to John chapter 20, verse 1, where it says, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And so there's a stone. She saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, if you if you stop there and you only read John chapter 20, verse 1, then you would get the impression that Mary Magdalene was the only woman that went to the tomb on Easter morning and discovered it empty. In contradistinction to what the Synoptic Gospels say, where there's multiple women that discovered the tomb empty. But then when you continue reading and you get to verse 2, you find that she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know, use the plural pronoun, uk udamen, we do not know where they have laid him. And so um, the use of the plural pronoun there implies that she knows that there were, in fact, other women with her um, in that discovery of the empty tomb, um, and, uh, and that there were other women present. And so that then uh, actually dovetails with the synoptics and actually points to independence so that it's, and it not only neutralizes the objection to the Gospels, but also by establishing independence, it provides positive evidence for its veracity.
Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's, it's fascinating again, how these kind of work together. And, and um, to me, it's difficult when people are questioning Christianity uh, because of kind of what you mentioned here of, of these contradictions. And, and, but when you look at it and you actually see the positive case and how these work together and how it really makes it that much more credible. Now, the fifth and final issue that you kind of raised with me and, and mentioned that you kind of get is what you call, you know, emotional doubts. And so uh, what would this look like uh, when people are doubting the Christian faith? What, what would emotional doubt look like? How does this come through in the questions that you receive? Yeah, so emotional doubts is um, essentially when People can't put a finger on a particular intellectual, rational objection to Christianity, but um, they have an emotional doubt that it, they, it just doesn't feel true to them. Um, and uh, for a long time, I really didn't understand this objection. I, I didn't have a category for emotional doubts. I was kind of caught by surprise when I started doing this ministry in 2016 and I encountered people with emotional doubts because I've never experienced that in relation to the, my, my Christian faith. Um, but actually, um, I, I've come to understand know what people with emotional doubts are um, mean uh, because i i actually struggle with um flying anxiety i um i i've watched a lot of uh, documentaries about uh, plane crashes i find it fascinating <laughs> um but it causes me to feel anxious um, boarding an airplane so now i'm a frequent flyer so um but um and i you know I, i've looked at the statistics and the chances of dying in a plane crash are, are one in several million. So you probably got a higher chance of getting struck by lightning than dying in a plane crash. But nonetheless, it doesn't feel that way when, I, when I'm in the air, right? <laughs> Especially when you go through high turbulence. Um, yeah. And uh, um, and so there, that's helped me to understand and appreciate a little bit what people mean when they're talking about emotional doubts in relation to Christianity. And I think that, that uh, the emotional doubts will correlate with the amount of investment you have in a belief, right? So my... Um, my confidence in the resurrection of Jesus, for example, intellectually, is akin to my confidence that Caesar really crossed the Rubicon and that Julius Caesar really was assassinated in the Forum and so forth. These are similar um, beliefs that I have. But I, I don't think anyone would have emotional doubts about whether Julius Caesar really crossed the Rubicon because they haven't got any investment in that belief. Whereas for Christianity, likewise, um, they, they, they do have investment in, in that belief. And so that's going to cause emotional doubts. Likewise, I don't have... Um, emotional doubts about the millions of airplanes that are flying around the world right now. I have an intellectual belief that they're going to get to their destination with that issue. But when I'm actually on it, now I've actually got an investment in that belief. And so that's going to cause um, uh, emotional doubts in that way. Um, and, and this also relates, of course, to what I said earlier about you know, not limiting your not limiting your inquiry to your own personal experience, but also being prepared to consider testimony of God's um, tangible encounters with people in the world through miracles and so forth. Yeah. Well, we only have, oh my goodness, about two and a half minutes left. And, and there's a couple of questions that came in for you. And I have one kind of final question, if we can kind of run through these as quick as possible, so I don't keep you over the agreed upon time. Um, but what advice would you give to those uh, who are listening, who are trying to have conversations with people who are doubting? Kind of, is there kind of a, a brief kind of um, process that you can work through? How do you go about talking to people that are doubting and kind of reassuring them um, or, or, or working with them through their, the issues that they have? Yeah, so I, I first of all want to listen to what their objections and concerns are, um, and um, I, I try to help people develop a protocol for working through doubts in an intellectually responsible way. So, for instance, I encourage people to distinguish between objections that carry high stakes and objections that carry low stakes. Right. A high stakes objection is an objection to the resurrection of Jesus. A yeah. low stakes objection would be um, an objection to um, to a, an in-house issue such as um, the 
eternality of hell, for example. I think that you can be a um, an annihilationist. Um, I think you can have a coherent interpretation of, of scripture and, and be an annihilationist. It's possible or um, an objection to Calvinism will just become an Armenian or um, an objection to young earth creationism will just become an old earth creationist. So these are what I call low stakes objections. That's important. Also encouraging people to distinguish between questions and objections, right? Not every question is an objection. Questions right. can express an objection, but um, a question only becomes an objection when you add an additional premise, either that we do know the answer and it entails some sort of internal inconsistency or is it on with empirical data, or we don't know the answer. And if Christianity were true, we should expect to know the answer. Um, so that's a common mistake people make. Um, yeah, I could go on, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's good. I, I, you know, I've heard the same thing of like, uh, someone once told me, you know, kind of like, make a list of all your doubts and then figure out like which ones on this list that are really challenging me. Uh, actually, if I never found out an answer to, if I never solved, would that mean Christianity is false? Would that destroy my faith? Or is that just kind of something I'm curious about and trying to figure out uh, in what that is true and kind of what you said there, kind of the the, the big ones or not. Um, now, there are two questions that came in as we are running out of time uh, on your view of Genesis after your kind of comments that you made there on your views. Uh, if I can take a couple minutes and ask you those, does that sound good? Sure. All right, perfect. All right. So the first one is from Jesse. He asked you, um, how do you reconcile uh, that uh, it being evening and morning the first day? So this common young earth creationist argument that each day is, is numbered as well as there's an evening and morning. Well, that's a good objection to Hugh Ross's view, but I'm not taking Hugh Ross's view. So Hugh Ross's view is that the, he argues that the Hebrew word Guillaume is, can, can mean a 12 hour or 24 hour period of time, but it can also mean a long, an indefinite but finite period of time in the same way that we could use the word day in that way. So I might say that back in the day, um, that that would be an expression of the, or use of the word day, which has a non-literal meaning. It means a, an indefinite but finite period of time. But I do think that that's what's going on in Genesis 1. I think that the correct translation of the Hebrew word yom is in fact a day in the ordinary regular sense. Um, and so I don't contest the translation of the Hebrew, but I would argue rather that the days are not meant to be taken literally or identical to our earth days, but rather they're analogous to the human rhythm of work and rest. And so the evening and morning there would be what exactly? Um, so demarcating the beginning and ending of that day of creation week. So as I said, I'm not okay. disputing that the correct translation is day, it's just, but there's a secondary issue whether it's meant to denote a literal day or a non-literal day. And that's, I think, the okay. issue. Okay. Uh, now, the last question here that came in for you, uh, maybe in relationship to the comments on, on uh, common descent, uh, what are your thoughts on theistic evolution? Um, I um, do not think theistic evolution is scientifically or theologically viable. Um, so theistic evolution would be the idea that God used evolution to, and basically took pains to cover his tracks um, and leave no evidence that he was involved in, in the creative process. And um, that's the view that takes, is taken by Biologos and the American Scientific Affiliation and uh, Faraday Institute and other groups. And I just I, I find the evolution evolution to be at odds with the scientific evidence. And I also think that it, you're going to have a, a very difficult time um, sustaining the idea of a robust historical atom if you take the traditional theistic evolution route. Wonderful. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me and everybody who is listening. Thank you for the great ministry that you have started, talkaboutdoubts.com. And I uh, just hope that many people head over there and and that it is just used to bring glory to God's kingdom and to uh, encourage people in the walk and the faith that they have. So thank you so much for joining me in this conversation today. Thanks for having me on. It's been great to be here.
Yeah. And everybody, again, check out that website, talkaboutdoubts.com. Uh, again, Jonathan, uh, the link to his uh, website is in the description below where you can go see all the different articles that he referenced uh, in this conversation that we had again. Um, and thank you. Uh, this is going to be a fun new 2022. A lot of fun conversations that are going to be coming up here in the future. Just got this book right there in the mail, uh, Faithfully Different by Natasha Crane. It comes out in February. Uh, that's going to be a fun conversation, hopefully coming up here soon, as well as other conversations. And so if you want to continue to receive resources and to watch videos that will help you think about what Christians believe, defend it well, and faithfully live it out, uh, consider subscribing and seeing all the different videos and interviews that are coming up here in the future, as well as sharing this. If this has been an encouragement to you, share it with anybody who may benefit from this as well. So thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. I pray that you have a blessed rest of your day and continue to think deeply about God, Jesus, Christianity, because they are worth thinking about. God bless everybody. Won't hesitate to follow